0: The life and death trial of the Parkland shooter gets underway with testimony. Plus, no sex ed in Miami-Dade County Public Schools for the time being. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. A Broward County jury began hearing testimony this week in the death penalty trial of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Gunman Nicholas Cruz. Video and student stories from inside the school filled much of the first week. What's been the reaction from Parkland families? And what's the early legal strategy? And then, the Miami-Dade County Public School Board votes to get rid of sex education for now. The board rejected two health education textbooks that had been okayed earlier after scores of petitions were filed against the curriculum. What role did a new state law play, and what could be next? It's all ahead on the South Florida Roundup, made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson.
1: He said to me, get out of here. Things are about to get bad.
0: That's what Christopher McKenna remembers Nicholas Cruz told him on February 14th, 2018, in a hallway of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Cruz has admitted to killing 17 people and wounding 17 others in that mass shooting. This week, a Broward County jury began hearing testimony in the trial, deciding if he will spend the rest of his life in prison or be put to death. And McKenna was one of the student survivors telling their stories. Alexander Dwardet was a student, and he was hurt in the shooting.
1: I realized, you know, something's wrong, but I, I still didn't want to believe that it was, you know, a shooting or anything. So um, I was trying to stay calm.
0: His brother Nicholas was among the 17 people killed. This week, this first week of testimony featured video from inside the building, sometimes graphic footage and audio, and video of the shooter afterward in fast food restaurants. Have you been watching this uh, testimony? Uh, Have you been paying attention? What do you think of the Parkland trial as the jury sits in judgment of the Parkland shooter for life or death? 800-743-WLRN is our phone number to join our conversation. Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward County reporter following closely this trial. Gerard, what is the story the prosecutors are hoping to tell the jury with the testimony during this first week?
2: Hi, Tom. Uh, Well, the prosecutors laid it all out in their opening statement. It lasted 55 minutes. Uh, Head prosecutor Mike Satz went moment by moment of February 14th um, of Nicholas Cruz arriving to the school, how he methodically murdered and injured seven, murdered 17 and injured 17 more. And then, um, you know, walked away afterwards. Mm -hmm. So that's what testimony has been like. It's been um, every day, former students, teachers who were in those classrooms retelling uh, the story of that day.
0: There's also been video that's been played and audio that's been listened to. Tell us about that.
2: Yes, the first day uh, was probably the most brutal uh, for the video and audio. The way the courtroom is set up is um, there are two screens that show their tv monitors that show the public and the press uh what the judge jury and lawyers are seeing those are turned off usually uh, for graphic evidence but the sound can still be heard so Hmm. on that first day we saw cell phone video from or we heard cell phone video rather of uh of the shooting um and it was it was loud um, and and you heard the shots and also the uh, students uh, crying and screaming for help.
0: It must have been uh, just unspeakable to uh, hear that, let alone witness it. Uh, and as you mentioned, the monitors toward the courtroom gallery where parents and students, teachers, members of the public uh, and journalists are, you can't see the videos, but you can hear those videos. Uh, what was the reaction uh, in the gallery? What Did you sense any reaction in, in the jury box?
2: Right. The, the jurors were, were and have been watching very attentively. Um, but the biggest reaction was was obviously from the parents of the victims. Um, you know, they, they all were crying. Um, they were holding each other. Um, a, a couple of them left as the first video played. And at one point, um, it's still kind of whether to be, to, to be seen if it was an error or not, um, a video actually came up on the monitors that are sh- shown to the public. Mm. And the family of one of the victims uh, shouted out, turned it off, shut it off. Mm. Uh, at w- which point they did, and the, the court went into recess to talk about it. But it, but it, was, it was a tense um, and, and brutal uh, day.
0: How has the process been as testimony and evidence has gotten underway? There were some uh, uh, there were some some early missteps, even in the jury selection, some some uh, some starts and stops during that process. How has this first week of testimony gone?
2: Uh, the testimonies themselves and the questioning has been uh, unexpectedly smooth. Uh, the prosecution are. Uh, introducing witnesses and and basically asking them to recount the day they do and and they show them some evidence and and that's the most of it the defense has only questioned or excuse me has only cross-examined one witness and they only asked one question Hmm. so it's been running smoothly the defense uh, has been objecting to certain things uh, showing certain photos and certain videos um, the latest thing they're objecting to today is um, the identification of Cruz in the courtroom where the defense, uh, where the prosecutors will ask uh, a witness, do you see that man in the courtroom today, the man that you saw on February 14th? And they'll stand up and, and point at Cruz. Um, those objections have largely been overruled, uh, which is kind of the pattern we've seen uh, with Judge Scherer. She has been ruling in favor of the prosecution uh, more often than not.
0: Elizabeth Scherer, the judge overseeing this trial of the Parkland shooter. Gerard Albert III, our Broward County reporter, covering this trial. Gerard, stick with us. We want to bring in Craig Trosino. Craig is the uh, uh, director of the Miami Law Innocence Clinic uh, with the University of Miami. Craig, welcome back to WLRN. What do you make of this early strategy by prosecutors?
3: Uh, well, uh, thank you for having me here, Tom. It's a pleasure. Um I think the strategy is exactly what I would have expected uh, to see from the prosecution, a very methodical, meticulous detailing of all the facts uh, leading up to this. It's a little bit of a different type of penalty phase, death penalty phase trial, because uh, uh, Mr. Cruz had already uh, pleaded uh, guilty to it. So we don't have the guilty, not guilty part of the trial. This is just focused on sentencing. So the prosecution is going to have to get into a lot of the things. Things the jury would have normally already heard. So that's why it's. Um, it, it might look from the outside that Mr. Satz is uh, um, dotting too many I's and crossing too many T's, but that's exactly what uh, what needs to happen from the prosecution's point of view.
0: And while it's the prosecution's case now, they're presenting their case, and it's a cross-examination and a rebuttal by the defense, what do you make of of what Gerard is sharing with us now is very little cross examination thus far by defense attorneys.
3: Yeah, I'm not terribly surprised uh, by that. Uh, as a matter of fact, because there's not a whole lot of uh, things that the defense can actually cross examine on um, these. These are things that uh, that have already been essentially admitted to uh, by Mr. Cruz in his guilty plea, um, and uh, there's not there's not much else that that can be done to advance the defense's case on cross-examination of the witnesses that we've already seen. I think there's been, what, 40 or so witnesses, I believe.
0: Okay. Many of those witnesses, Gerard, were eyewitnesses to uh, to this tragedy. Is that right?
2: Yes. Uh, most of them this week have been uh, teachers and former students, uh, many of them who were injured in the shooting. Um, and then As the week has uh, ended here, we're seeing now the police who responded to the shooting and uh, saw the injured and and even the police officer who made the arrest of Nicholas Cruz.
0: So, Craig, is the is the uh, prosecution case here focused on building the case for the jurors of aggravated circumstances, those circumstances that are necessary in order for a jury to uh, be unanimous and vote for the death penalty in Florida?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, because the, 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 the way this is going to work is the jury, instead of a, a typical uh, guilty, not guilty, where there are elements, statutory elements of the crime that the jury must find in the penalty phase context, there are statutory aggravators that the jury must find beyond reasonable doubt. Um, and some of those would include that the crime was committed in a cold, calculated and premeditated manner. Uh, that it was done and with a reckless disregard for human life, or that it was done in an especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel manner, and that there's prior fel- felony uh, prior felony uh, convictions. Uh, those are going to be the main ones that the prosecution is going to focus on. So each one of the witnesses that we've heard from so far is going to, in closing argument, get tied into one or more than one of those particular aggravators. And then the jury is going to have to decide um, beyond a reasonable doubt whether one or more of those aggravators have been established by the state and they need need to make that decision in a unanimous way. Right. So each each aggravator found must be unanimously found. And then if they do that, then they look at the mitigators that the defense will eventually put on yeah. and decide whether the aggravators were out outweighed the mitigators.
0: Yeah, uh, Gerard, you, you have uh, explored this is the key balance of justice that's really uh, uh, facing jurors to decide these aggravating factors that Craig mentioned. Uh, and uh, balance those against what's expected to be the defense uh, presenting mitigating factors. What are some of those mitigating factors, Gerard, that the defense is is likely to uh, to try to put on the stand and show evidence of?
2: So the defense is uh, going to try and talk about uh, Cruz's upbringing, uh, problems with mental health, um, behavioral health, and and even. Um, from before he was born uh some of the experts that they are bringing in are experts on on fetal alcohol syndrome um uh something that can happen in the womb Mm -hmm. so they're going to try and um explain that that Cruz has always struggled with mental health he 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 was young his, his father passed away and he saw that and um a couple of months before the shooting, his mother passed away. Uh, he was living uh, with with family friends on and off. Uh, and I think they're going to try and show that all of this played a played a role.
0: And Craig, how does the defense try to put that to a jury in a tangible way to present these mitigating factors that uh, that Gerard's talking about?
3: Well, they're going to they're going to do it in a very similar way to the uh, the, the prosecutions doing
0: doing it in a very meticulous, methodical
3: way. Just like there are the statutory aggravators, there are statutory mitigators um,
0: but, but, that include. Yeah, my, sorry I'm for sorry. the interruption, Craig, but my no, I'm my sure. what I'm trying to get at is like how does that manifest itself? Right, uh, the the, oh. the prosecutors are using eyewitnesses, they're using videos to uh, to show in in their argument what they believe are the aggravating factors? What is the kind of evidence or experts or testimony that the defense is likely to present as it tries to present its mitigating factors?
3: They will likely present uh, people who have known Mr. Cruz throughout his life, uh, teachers, psychologists, psychiatrists, school records, um, uh, any any other documentation that would lead to establish you know, the, the the mental health aspects, uh, medical information about his mother and the fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, um, all of those would be things that they would want to bring out. there will probably be a fair amount of expert testimony, mm-hmm. especially uh, in the case of what, you know, what fetal alcohol is, fetal alcohol syndrome is, how it manifests in a child uh, in the developmental stage, how it manifests child you know, and, and after they've been born and, and go through life. Um, there, you know, there, If there's uh, instances of maybe post-traumatic stress disorder or other extreme emotional disturbances that um, Mr. Cruz may have had, they'll, they'll have the documentation uh, of that if it exists and expert testimony to describe to the jury how that impacts uh, his ability to, for instance, conform himself to the requirements of the law, et cetera.
0: And is the threshold uh, here to plant reasonable doubt in the mind of a single juror? That these mitigating factors outweigh the aggravating circumstances?
3: That would be one aspect of it. The threshold is at at a broader scope is to put a a human face on on Mr. Cruz uh, with regard to his mental deficiencies, Mm -hmm. uh, if if that's the way they end up going. Um, But yes, that ultimately the aggravators need to be found by uh, a unanimous decision. So the defense is going to attempt to uh, negate a unanimous decision on any one of the aggravators and then present the mitigators as a means of overriding, essentially, the aggravators. Yeah. Because even if the jury finds, let's say, the cold calculated and premeditated aggravators, uh, aggravator beyond reasonable doubt, unanimously, they can still look at the mitigators and de- conclude in their deliberations that the mitigators outweighed the aggravators and therefore recommend life instead of
0: death. And so where the uh, judge's instructions are going to be key in the weeks ahead as well. But uh, first, next week, Gerard, what's on the docket for uh, for the jury and for the uh, trial next week?
2: So we're not entirely sure. Um, the witness list is is... Near a thousand people long for the prosecutors, but um, it looks like they're tracing Cruz on that day this week. Mm-hmm. Next week, we might see some of the things beforehand uh, that were mentioned in the opening as well. Um, how Cruz days before the shooting made a video saying that I'm going to be the next school shooter. I'm trying to kill at least twenty people. You're all going to die. Um, so, and and those came up in, in pre-trial hearings as well. So. That very well likely may come up, if not next week, in the coming weeks, uh, to establish that that premeditated side of all the killings.
0: The jury selection uh, was quite the process, Gerard, and uh, uh, I suspect that, the, that one of the significant questions the jurors were faced with was whether or not they could vote for the death penalty, whether or not they supported it morally is a different question. Um, any, any trouble with the jury at this point? Lots of alternatives are there, alternates rather are there, but, uh, so far everybody in the box who uh, was selected to sit in the jury remains.
2: Yes. Yeah, so far, uh, everything is, is, um, running smoothly, which is, uh, an odd thing for yeah. this trial, but has, so far has the judge instructed
0: the jury to, uh, turn off, you know, news coverage conversation of the trial.
2: Yes, that's that's mentioned yeah. almost every day. The news coverage, how they're not supposed to read it, but, but you know, more importantly, um, they're not supposed to talk to anybody about it, even among themselves. Yeah. Um, when they go out to lunch, when they go out break, when they leave for the day.
0: Jared Albert III, WLRN's Broward County reporter, uh, following the Parkland shooter trial. Jared, as always, thanks for sharing your reporting with us here on the Roundup. Thank you, Tom. Craig Trocino is the uh, director of the Miami Law Innocence Center, former public defender. He's at the University of Miami. Craig, appreciate you walking through uh, all of the uh, legal balance issues that are at stake here in this trial. Much appreciated.
3: Thank you, Tom. I appreciate coming.
0: Still to come on our program here on the South Florida Roundup, no health or sex ed in Miami-Dade Public Schools this year, at least not for several months. We'll talk about it and take your phone calls, 800-743-9576. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. There will be no sex ed for Miami-Dade County Public School students until at least November, and maybe not until March. This week, the Miami-Dade School Board rejected the health education curriculum for middle and high school students. This material had already been reviewed and okayed, but more than 200 petitions were filed opposing the two textbooks. Parents and residents behind the petition effort argued the material wasn't age appropriate and the district's previous approval wasn't transparent enough. Those opposing the material have a new tool to push back against school curricula and they're using it. The parental rights and education law bans public school instruction of sexual orientation and gender identity that is not considered quote, age appropriate.
4: I wanna make sure it's clear. We are not against uh, sexual education. We are not against human reproduction and disease education books. We are for statutory compliance, age-appropriateness, in the content.
0: That's Alejandro Serrano, who heads the conservative group County Citizens Defending Freedom.
4: An 11-year-old being told where to obtain and how easy it is to obtain Plan B pills in our assessment is not age-appropriate.
0: Supporters of the textbooks argued rejecting the material means students in a county with one of the highest rates of HIV transmission will not be taught about safe sex. Max Fenning is the founder of PRISM, that's an LGBTQ nonprofit.
1: Comprehensive sex education gives young people the tools they need to protect themselves if and when they decide to be sexually active.
0: Let's hear your thoughts on sex ed in public schools. 800-743-WLRN. Your phone calls in a moment. 800-743-9576. WLRN's education reporter Kate Payne is with us. She was uh, monitoring the uh, school board meeting that led to this decision. Kate... Let's start here with the textbooks under scrutiny. What was the material going to cover?
5: So there are two different textbooks here that the district was looking at. There's one edition for middle schoolers, one edition for high schoolers. So again, kids in sixth to 12th grade and Uh, These books cover a range of personal health and safety topics um, over a number of chapters, you know, things like understanding and preventing diseases, promoting healthy relationships, preventing and responding to violence, as well as human development and reproduction um, and pregnancy prevention. And not all of the chapters that are in the book as designed were intended to be in the version that Miami-Dade was looking at.
0: Explain that a little bit further. What, What does that mean exactly?
5: So there were some chapters that uh, district staff determined were not needed to meet state standards uh, outlined in, in state statute. Uh, So one of those being Understanding Sexuality, Um, they decided that that was above and beyond what they're required by the state to teach.
0: So in the middle school textbook and in the high school textbook, there was a chapter called Understanding Sexuality. And in the approved versions of the textbooks for Miami-Dade public school students, those chapters had already been removed. And this approval was now revisited this week, was the material that uh, the petitions objected to included in the chapters that were already removed?
5: Yes. So the the parents that were filing these complaints were objecting to both material that would not end up in the Miami-Dade version, as well as material that was intended to end up in the county's county's version of these textbooks. And so that does include information on contraception, emergency contraception, um, abortion, and... uh, Matters like that.
0: We heard from Alejandro Serrano, one of those leading the petition effort, talking about uh, uh, 11-year-olds learning about Plan B. Would this material have covered a Plan B medication for middle schoolers?
5: So I'll I'll caveat this by saying I haven't been able to review all of the, the full textbooks myself. But according to textbook excerpts uh, that Mr. Serrano's group has been circulating, yes, in in a chapter that would be included in the middle school version, um, it does talk about safe haven laws where someone could, if they can't care for a baby, can, can give that child up and also methods of emergency contraception like IUDs and like Plan B.
0: What were some of the other objections of the material that would have been been taught in Miami-Dade County Public Schools this year if the original uh, chapters as approved would have gone forward and found their way into the classrooms.
5: Yeah, so there were a number of complaints that parents raised, again, on instruction as far as how to prevent pregnancy, how to end pregnancy, um, including, you know, specific forms of contraception, um, again, on on safe haven laws, and also about seeking sexual health care, you know, some of these chapters give guidance to students as far as how to approach a health provider um, or, or another trusted adult in, in trying to figure out how to navigate these, these experiences.
0: What about sexually transmitted diseases?
5: Um, yeah, that, that information is also included in, uh, in the textbooks and is outlined in, in state statute as well um to my knowledge i don't believe i've heard parents complain about that education i see
0: so what does florida law allow for a parent regarding whether or not their child receives sex ed instruction
5: so florida law first off requires students to receive uh, or requires districts to, to provide comprehensive, age-appropriate health education. And that includes um, information on family life, on healthy relationships, dating violence, um, and the benefits of sexual abstinence and the consequences of teen pregnancy. Parents have long been able to opt out of that instruction, have been able to sign a letter from the district saying, I would not like my children to to learn this. Uh, and, and they step out into the hallway or, or whatever the case is. Sure. And advocates and and school board members who voted for these books said repeatedly, you know, that's an important part of this process. Um, But with this decision of rejecting these textbooks, they're saying that the district is effectively opting out the entire district, at least for the next four to eight months.
0: And so with that consequence of the vote this week is. Are Miami-Dade County Public Schools in violation of Florida law, given that there is now no health and sexual education curriculum for this school year?
5: So the district has said they were actually already in violation this past school year Mm. um, because of this new uh, process for reviewing these materials, which was um, instigated by a state law that was passed in 2021. It's this lengthy extended process. They were not able to complete that for this past school year. So they've notified the state we were not in compliance for this past school year. Um, and going forward, if they don't approve additional materials, um, then they would be in non-compliance again. But, um, under state law, you know, it's required for districts to teach this, but it's not required for every student to learn it. It's, it's not a graduation requirement. So as long as they, um, you know, ad- adopt new materials and, and teach it over the next school year, at some point they would be in compliance technically.
0: And, of course, a big change this year is the new parental rights in education law. What role did that law play with opponents to this curriculum?
5: I think it gave them cover to allege that this information doesn't comply with state law, whether that's true or not. It gives them the cover and the, um, you know, they, they can point to and, and make this argument that it's it's not, um, not allowable under state law because of those, uh, because of the language around what is age appropriate, what's age and developmentally appropriate. And I think it's important to point out, you know, We don't really know at this point what the Department of Education believes is age-appropriate or what certain judges may determine is age-appropriate. But um, I think it's important to say, you know, for children, uh, especially girls are going into puberty at younger and younger ages, starting their periods at 11 or 10 or Mm -hmm. 9 years old. Mm -hmm. And so this is critical information for these children.
0: And to be clear, the Department of Education, the State Department of Education, has not opined on this particular material that's been in focus this week and the last several weeks and months here in Miami-Dade County about whether or not it complies with the parental rights and education law, has it?
5: To my knowledge, no. And that's been a complaint from districts um, across our region as far as they want more guidance from the department as far as how to comply with with HB 1557 going forward.
0: And so what do we know about the organizational efforts of the opponents, of those behind these petitions, particularly the county citizens defending freedom group?
5: Yeah, so that's the group that um, Alex Serrano was was representing. So that group is a national, you know, right-leaning group that has local chapters across the country. Um, I think we can think of it a- akin to Moms for Liberty. Um, and, you know, they're activating local parents on social issues in education, uh, like book bans, issues having to do with LGBTQ people. Um, Some of these groups, some of these chapters are aligned with others, opposed to masking, you know, opposed to vaccine mandates, um, as well as to Turning Point USA. Um, You know, it it sort of represents a a coordination across larger right-wing organizations across the country. And I think there's a lot to track going forward. And
0: this local leader, Serrano, who spoke at uh, at the school board meeting, who we just heard from in our introduction to this conversation... Uh, uh, does not have public school children. Is that correct?
5: Yeah. So he told us he has three children who were in the Miami-Dade public schools up until 2020, I believe. Um, He then uh, started homeschooling then and then has since uh, put them into, I believe it's a charter school in the area.
0: The school board vote was as tight as it possibly could be on this, five to four to reject the books. Two of those voting against the material are running for re-election in this uh, 2022 political cycle. Maritere Rojas and Marta Perez. So how could this decision play a role in their campaigns and, uh, and in this ballot question about whether or not they remain on the school board?
5: Yeah. And I'll add that uh, another school board member, Christy Fraga, is running for a separate uh, a separate seat. She's running for mayor of Doral this cycle. Um, But, yeah, I I think it um, it demonstrates the sea change that we're seeing in politics right now. Um, The politicization of education, of identity um, and sort of this integration from the state level, you know, from Governor Ron DeSantis on down as far as. sort of this playbook um, of, of how to reshape what are the priorities um, for, for local education even at a time when there are so many other pressing <laughs> issues facing our schools um, I think this vote demonstrates the power of this constituency as these board members see it as far as the the you know quote unquote parents rights mm-hmm. um, groups uh, I, I think it it shows, Yeah, the the power, the sway that they're holding right now.
0: We're speaking about the decision this week by the Miami-Dade County Public School Board to reject some uh, health and sex education curriculum for middle and high school students. 800-743-WLRN, your phone calls in a moment. Line them up now, though. 800-743-9576. Parents, students, teachers, we want to hear from you. Uh, What do you make of this decision that uh, Miami-Dade County public middle and high school students will not have health and sexual education curriculum uh, uh, at least until November, maybe not until March at the earliest? 800-743-WLRN. We're speaking with WLRN's education reporter, Kate Payne. So what are the next steps here? With uh, with no instruction, what can middle and high school students and parents expect in terms of health education, sexual education uh, in the classroom?
5: Well, again, the chief academic officer of the district has said they cannot teach this unit of study until new materials are adopted. So that means restarting this whole months long process again, Um, you know, and and Wednesday's vote was was the culmination of of that process. Um, And, you know. What's to say whether board members, whether these parents' groups will have changed their minds four to eight months from now? Mm -hmm. You know, they could file petitions again. Um, through this process, um, we'll be out of an election cycle mm-hmm. at that point. Right. Um, perhaps that will will make a difference. But I think again, it's important to say that this process was precipitated by a state law implemented in 2021 that requires all districts to annually approve materials on reproductive health um, at a school board meeting at an open meeting. Um, so this is the, the beginning of what will be a year-by-year year process.
0: Kate Payne covers education for us here at Double D Weller. and Thanks for sharing your reporting, Kate. Thank you. Yvette in Homestead has been listening in. We want to hear from you, Yvette. Thanks for calling. You're on the radio.
1: Yes, hello. Thank you for having me. Happy to. Um, I have uh, two kids. One is starting sixth grade this um, coming August. And I, I had no idea. I don't know why nothing was ever sent out to parents about this issue i think it's ridiculous to hold our kids back like this Uh, i think that kids should receive as much knowledge as possible if these adults can't get it together then they should just continue with what what they have had approved i mean what what are what is this you know we're in 2022 (laughs) Yeah, we cannot hurt our children like this.
0: Yeah, so you've got a ideology. You'll have a new middle schooler in your house next year. Yeah, that's the oldest child.
1: Yes, it is. Yeah, and you know, I was counting on um, her being taught about this, it's supposed to introduce it, you know, further Mm -hmm. to my to to the way that I would like her to learn about it. I mean, that's our role as parents. Uh, having our kids' block, like their education, formal education blah is is it, it's appalling. I, I'm I feel like we're we're like we've gone back like 50 years. You
0: know? Yvette, uh, good luck with the middle schooler, first of all. As the uh, I've been through it twice now, so uh, uh, patience and uh, and a lot of luck and a lot of communication as best possible. But I hear you, and we're going to put some of those questions to a school board member we'll be speaking with here in just a moment. Appreciate you listening to the South Florida Roundup and Homestead. Thanks so much.
1: Okay,
0: thank you. Yeah. We've got more to come here on this discussion about sex ed in public schools. 800-743-WLRN is our phone number, 800-743-9576 we're back on the south florida roundup here on wlr and public radio for all of south florida supported by you and thanks for that support i'm tom hudson we're talking about the decision this week by the miami-dade county public school board to reject two health and sex ed textbooks for middle and high school students The books had been okayed months ago, but were reconsidered after almost 300 petitions objecting to the material were filed. The board voted 5 to 4 this week to cancel the curriculum. So how should children and teenagers be taught sex ed? Are there some things they should not learn? 800-743-WLRN. The role of teaching and parents in health and sexual education of students. eight hundred seven four three ninety five seventy six. doctor Steve Gallin is back with us here on the South Florida Roundup, vice chair of the Miami-Dade County Public School Board, District 1 representative. Dr. Gallon, welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining us.
6: Hey, good afternoon. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: You voted ultimately to keep these textbooks. Why? Absolutely,
6: because the number one, our, our professional, our uh, ethical, our moral imperative is to make sure that we provide access and opportunity for students to have data-driven, scientific-based information to reinforce and support their educational experiences. Uh, The process was transparent, the process was consistent with board policy, state statute, community input, parental uh, voice, parental vote to a greater extent, and uh, everything was done in decency and in order, and there was no need to uh, deprive uh, students from the opportunity to have uh, access to those resources,
0: as you mentioned, this uh, curriculum had already been approved. Uh, the superintendent decided to uh, bring it back for reconsideration after the uh, almost 300 petitions were filed. Uh, is that a decision that uh, that you support to bring it back for reconsideration, or should this have just been uh, been kept in the uh, uh, kept in the column of uh, decision made and time to move on?
6: No, actually, the fact that he had to bring it back was not for us to deliberate over the issue again it was to accept the recommendation of the hearing officer uh so what happened Tom, which you, is that which once your call,
0: five year colleagues decided to reject and they voted against it to throw out the curriculum
6: well to to not accept it absolutely but i want to for the listeners is very important to understand that the process followed the letter of the law if you have some exceptions that are documented with timely petitions that process is uh, obligated to go through an independent uh, hearing officer. I see. The hearing okay. officer had an opportunity to re- review the petitions, which there were 278, to hear witness testimony from those who are filing those petitions and members from the district. And he has 14 days to deliberate over all of that information yeah. and come back with a recommendation. He came back with a recommendation that all procedures were followed, that the materials were age appropriate that parents and stakeholders had an opportunity to express themselves and equally important tom that parents who took exception with the materials of the content therein had an opt-out provision that is already reflected in school board policy right so the recommendation was to accept the hearing officer's recommendation pursuant to state statute that drove the process
0: opponents objected to some language such as a teenager in the text described as gender fluid Is that appropriate language, in your opinion, for sex ed? Uh,
6: In the context in which it was presented, uh, it was age appropriate, determined by the independent hearing officer. Uh, It was uh, age appropriate, determined uh, based on research and and fact-based science. Uh, And again, parents who make that determination that it is not age appropriate for their children have an opportunity to opt out. So this is, we talk about parental choice. This had parental choice. This had parental voice uh, reflected in the process from soup to nuts.
0: What does this experience, Dr. Gallen, tell you about the influence of the Parental Bill of Rights Law in parental involvement in curriculum going forward?
6: Uh, This is a new expedition that we are embarking upon. It is one that obviously causes some concerns uh, because this whole notion and narrative about parental involvement and parental voice, uh, Tom, this is not new. I've been in education for over 30 years, from a teacher to a principal to a superintendent. Parents have always had an opportunity to be engaged in the process and to make educational decisions about their children. Now, to the extent that these provisions in the new law uh, not only seek to, quote unquote, defend certain segments of, of the constituents, but it also denies an opportunity for access to parents who want to avail themselves Uh, to such information. You just had a parent on your station that Mm -hmm. said her child is hereby being denied. So we have to square our obligation under the Constitution. We have to square our obligation under the tenets of public education. Yes, we want to defend children uh, who need defending according to what their parents believe, but we should never ever deny access to information, scientific, data-driven, research-based information, to children and whose parents want their children to have that information as a part of their educational experience. And that's what we're doing.
0: Dr. Gallon, appreciate your time today. Nice to talk to you. Always a pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Steve Gallon, vice chair and District 1 uh, school board member of the Miami-Dade County School Board. Now, the uh, South Florida Roundup here on WLRN did reach out to uh, one board member who voted to reject the curriculum, Dr. Luby Navarro. She did not respond to our invitation. Let's say hello to Dr. Lisa Gwynn. She's back with us here on The Roundup, uh, University of Miami Pediatrician, Associate Professor of Clinical Pediatrics, Public Health Sciences at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, a long list of uh, accomplishments and professional organizations that Dr. Gwynn is involved with, and also the school district uh, during the pandemic. Dr. Gwyn, welcome back to WLRN. We're going to... Don't, Thank you, Tom. I'm sorry about that. There you go. No problem at all. It's still a, <laughs> uh, a, a pandemic. A little nail
4: biting here. <laughs> little
0: pandemic problem sometimes with those mute buttons still, but great to have you. <laughs> Thanks for creating time in, in your schedule. What's your take on the discussion of uh, sex ed, health ed in uh, in public schools that certainly this experience has, has re-sparked in a big way?
4: Yeah, I mean, I just think it's it's really unfortunate that it's come to this. I mean, reproductive health has been part of uh, health curriculum in, in schools for as long as I can remember. Um, I took and, it. You
0: took it in, in the schools yeah, that we went to, I suspect. Yeah,
4: absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, as um, Dr. Gallen mentioned, you know, parents have the option to, to opt, opt out of their child participating. Um, you know, in the, the that part of their um, education. So it's really unfortunate. And I, I have to say, I, I actually was um, charged with uh, reviewing those textbooks. I read them cover to cover.
0: So when you saw the phrase, so a couple of the phrases and some of the material that the opponents objected to, I mentioned uh, uh, one teenager in the text describing uh, themselves as uh, gender fluid. There was also objections around discussion of, uh, 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 pregnancy prevention and contraceptives.
4: Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't we want our teenagers to know about all of this? You know, um, do do we want our our teens to live in a bubble and uh, go out into the world and not be familiar with all of this information? That's extremely important for them to know. Um, I mean, it is just I, I'm not sure what what we've come to here, but it's it's just unfair. It's unfair to the kids, you know, the the Kids need to know this information. They need to know it to protect themselves, um, to make their right health choices for themselves and also to have a a good understanding of of the people around them that may be different than them.
0: Give us a sense of how you would guide regulators and even school board members and parents, for that matter, to decide what's age appropriate for uh, children in terms of sexual education
4: so you know my recommendation is to follow not just science but the recommendations of the academy of pediatrics for educators you know those of us that are that make a that have spent many many years studying medicine and development and so forth you know talk to the professionals about what is age appropriate um you know children pretty much develop Um, consistently as long as they don't have any delays, but pretty much most 16 year olds are have the maturity level that they can handle the information. And sometimes they may not have the maturity level, but they they don't quite understand it. It doesn't mean that's a bad thing. Uh, Oftentimes, if if a child is a a little bit um, less mature, uh, many kids go home and they ask their parents.
0: And so what about that balance of parental involvement in in sex ed versus uh, outsourcing that, shall we say, to a teacher, to a classroom, to to curriculum.
4: So let's just remember something that, that that what was banned or what was not approved, I should say, are instructional materials that teachers can use to teach these topics that are state mandated Yeah,
0: as a textbook and a workbook.
4: That's correct. And so now teachers have nothing. Hmm. So is is that the right thing for these kids to not have anything that you know now the teachers they they're not going to teach anything without the appropriate um approved right. instructional materials and these materials have been vetted by professionals um you know I, I mean I actually read them cover to cover and and there was nothing that was not appropriate you know age appropriate in it uh it was vetted by um many uh experts in the field, field of education, especially health education, uh, and it's used all over the country. So um, I'm just not sure why now. Why, why stop educating our teens now when they really need it now more than ever?
0: Doctor Lisa Gwen is a pediatrician with the University of Miami. Doctor Gwen, always a pleasure. Thanks for your time.
4: Thank you, Tom.
0: Your phone calls here now. Mohammed has been listening in in Miami Beach. Thanks for calling. You're on the radio.
7: Hello, Tom. Uh... Do you hear me?
0: I do, loud and clear. Go ahead.
7: Okay, Tom. Uh, let me make it quite clear. I'm speaking to you as a father of two kids that went through the Miami-Dade educational system. Both of them went to Ivy League schools with full scholarships.
0: Congratulations.
7: Um, so I'm totally indebted to you know Miami-Dade County and its educational system. Also, I was a previous owner of clinics in the middle of Liberty City of Balata, and I've seen when you're the kids and you know, between the ages of 12 to 18 and 19, where they're not educated at all about sex ed or not given it because someone's religious beliefs want to stop it. We are having kids being parents to kids. And, you know, I understand that this is is matter of life and all that stuff, but the people who are saying, hey, yeah, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to teach these kids and we don't want to have their brains washed or anything, excuse me, then you complain that kids have kids and it costs money and the money is coming out of our pockets. Then they complain that we don't have enough money and that they're paying taxes too much because we don't have, We need to supplement the educational system. And for me, like, the teachers are, I, I always appreciate our teachers because, country to everyone else they are the uh, they bring the future to us yeah. they're, they're the ones who make the future for our you know future
0: yeah it is true so, mohammed uh, i'm going to hear from one more call but uh, thanks for sharing your perspective from miami beach congratulations on the two kids sounds uh, like uh, two wonderful folks here hopefully uh, staying in miami let's hear from patricia in fort lauderdale patricia go ahead i got a few extra seconds but we want to hear from you
8: Sure. I mean, people don't take accountable how kids are uh, very well-developed uh, they, than they used to be. I mean, their hormones are different. Everything is, you know, a lot more advanced. Uh, I got an 11-year-old uh, niece who is absolutely fully developed, and it, makes, it scares me. Mm. So, I mean, I do feel that I do speak to her directly about boys and sex and stuff like that because I think it's important for them to understand because their hormones are raging. Uh, not that she's doing anything, but yet yeah, it's something that needs to be yep. educated, whether she's listening to me where she might they, they shy away from their parents and they'd rather go to a teacher sometimes and then they have books where they could go to a book and they could pull it out themselves privately yeah what, what's the, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be an issue There shouldn't be a political issue uh, you know if they have nothing to replace it, then leave it as it is until they can replace it. Bottom line.
0: Patricia, thanks for adding your voice to the conversation from Fort Lauderdale. Good luck with your niece
8: thank you have a great
0: day you as well thanks for everybody here for joining in our conversation finally on the roundup this week the passing of an artist who allowed us to walk among the orange peels you know as the late 1980s and klaus Oldenburg was commissioned to create a public sculpture in miami-dade county the county government ordered it it was for a public space next to government center in downtown miami Now, Oldenburg, Swedish-American, known for taking everyday objects, making them huge, and then putting them in unique places, allowing us to be amongst these items that we would normally just uh, handle. His spoon and cherry sculpture in Minneapolis is probably the best known. But while Minnesota may have that cherry, Miami, Miami has his orange slices. Dropped Bowl with Scattered Slices and Peels. That's the official name of the sculpture that features just that, slices and peels of what is presumably a Florida orange. The pieces are just enormous. You can walk around them. You can stare up, look down them, maybe even climb on them, although I don't know if that's allowed. And you can walk through gigantic pieces of a shattered bowl. Well, Oldenburg died on Sunday. He was 93 years old. When his Miami Orange sculpture was inaugurated in 1990, it was said to, quote, represent a city in the making, deriving its particular order out of the apparent disorder accompanying Miami's expansion. Well, That's a notion as fresh today as it was 32 years ago. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup this week. It's produced by Natu Twei with help from Leslie Ovaye. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohn. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. And let me pause here for a moment because today is Terrence's last day with us at WLRN. You may hear his name over the airwaves every now and then, but he has been a driving force of WLRN for more than a decade. His wise editing and steady guidance here has helped shape our journalism. And in one way or another, he's been part of every local news story that you hear. Big stories, Hurricane Irma, the Surfside Collapse, and everyday stories from the halls of local governments to the wildlife of the Everglades. One of his many lasting legacies here at WLRN is his contribution to the internship program. His passion for helping early career journalists will continue to benefit all of us. Inside the newsroom, Terrence is famous for asking, you know what I like about you? Well, you know what I like about you, Terrence? Your humanity, your high ethical standards, and your sense of joy. So thanks for being a world class journalist, leader, and friend to all of us here at WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for calling and listening and supporting Public Radio. This program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist.
3: WLRN Public Media.